This evening we're going to uh, continue in a series we started several weeks ago and kind of picking back up on it as we're going through 1 John as I have entitled this series Life Made Manifest. And what we've been doing is trying to see how John takes uh, some very intricate and very theological ideas and themes and topics and brings them to the ground, brings them to a practical level to apply them to this church or perhaps a collection of churches And at the same time, that's what he's doing, taking these big themes and big doctrines and bringing them down to a practical letter. And in that way, I think that's what John is doing. He's evidencing this really great love that he has for this congregation, for the people of it. And he's showing that love by sharing this great concern that he has for the growing wave of false doctrines that are that were so prevalent in that day. As we've noted, perhaps, and this will be a refresher to you, what John is doing, he's calling out this false teaching, this very bad sort of wrong way of explaining the scriptures, but especially explaining the person of Christ. And it was all sort of encapsulated in this new sort of system of belief that we would call Gnosticism, which the last time we were in this particular letter, it is really just this idea that pertains to being able to know spiritual mysteries or spiritual insight. It is you being able to have some sort of enlightened experience by which you are able to gain higher learning. And that was the end game of these Gnostic teachers to sort of put forth and promote these sort of uh, experiences that sort of transcended the written doctrine of God's word. Which, by the way, is why it was so important. I think we've pointed this out, but it's worth repeating. Why it was so important that near the end of the apostolic age, that all of the apostles were adamant about the fact that these things needed to be written down. The reason why we have a New Testament is because of the growing wave of bad doctrines and teachings. And the apostles saw this. You can read some of Paul's writings, especially 2 Timothy. where He's very adamant about these things need to be written down. Bring the books we need to preserve and expand the writings of scripture. To preserve them and protect them against the growing sort of mysteries that were leading people astray. This is what Paul would talk about where he is warning Timothy. I'm getting sidetracked, but that's okay. But when he's warning Timothy in those letters about don't get all caught up in all those genealogies. And and in the King James, he calls them vain janglings. Just empty talk that just sounds good. It sounds really smart and really intelligent and really intellectual. But it's really just nothing. And John here is calling them out. Calling out these Gnostic teachers who... Tried to sway people into believing that true salvation, true spirituality, true religion, you could say, is not just receiving the word of God by faith. There's actually something deeper, something more mysterious. And it was based on this sort of mystic experience that they were trying to promote. And so what John does here is he takes aim of those teachers in order to expose them, in order to expose how weak their view of spirituality is and how wayward it is. And he's basically just dismantling it at every turn. But he also does this in order to comfort these beloved Christians that he calls my children. You can see that they are dear to them. He has so much affection for these believers. And he's concerned. He cares for their spiritual walk. He cares for their lives. He cares for their faith. 
And up until now, up till about, yeah, about verse 3 of chapter 2, what he's been doing is really putting forth the truth of, we could say, God's word. The word made flesh. It's why if you examine chapter 1 of this letter and then chapter 1 of the gospel that John wrote, they're almost identical. They're very similar in terms of how they begin. He's beginning with Christ. He's beginning with the word of God made flesh that has come. And that is the word that is the word that gives us stabilization, that gives us certainty. And he's demonstrated already how that word, the word of Christ, has come to atone for our sins and has made us now the sons and daughters of God. And how this same Christ ministers as our advocate, as he says there in verses 1 and 2, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's when we get to verse 3. Where here I would say the burden of this little section is how we can know we are God's. How we can know that we are possessed in God, in Christ, we could say. How we can know that we belong to the Father. That's what he is commending to this little church. Notice what he says. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we, com- if we keep his commandments. I think the reason for stressing this point is very clear up to this point. Because these Gnostic teachers, again, they were promoting a way to know God, so to speak. To know this higher power. To know all of these, uh, this sort of spirituality by way of experiences. Again, by way of insight and enlightenment. And by way of mysticism. And all these sorts of ideas. And it just means that if they were up there sort of preaching and they would say, if you haven't been able to experience this yet, then you don't know true salvation. Your salvation is in doubt if you haven't experienced what this teacher was trying to put forth. And then that would mean then that your salvation hangs on the hope of future enlightenment, which I would say doesn't give anyone anything solid by which you could say, I know him. It's a shaky foundation. If your foundation is some sort of experience... That foundation is easily toppled, easily wobbled, we could say. And you can see what John is trying to do. He's trying to combat that very limp, that very vague way of saying that you have faith and salvation by saying, you can know that you know that you are God's. How? Well, John proceeds to articulate that. How, the, how you can know that you know a very certain confidence, a very certain knowledge that you belong to Christ. That you are in him, united to the Son of the Father. How can we do that? Well, I think John here emphasizes that. And I think there's three ways that he shows us it's like this, so to speak. The first is tonight, I think the first way that we can know that we know that we are Christ is if, number one, we guard the command. If we guard the command. If you notice verse 3, I'm going to read down through verse number 8 just to get us situated. Notice verse 3 again. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here, there's a couple of words that you might already get to know are repeated several times. And in fact, from verse 3 down through the end of this entire chapter, down through verse 29, the word know, K-N-W-O-W, is repeated 13 times. Which is just to say, you can clearly see that John is trying to get into the minds of this church the certain knowledge that they can have that they are Christ. But here in this little section, he mentions that word commandment some six times in just a few verses. And each occurrence, down from verses 3 to 8, has the same meaning, that of an authoritative declaration or regulation, something that ought to be proclaimed. That's what John is here referring to when he says commandments. And I think what we could basically boil it down to is this, that John has in mind when he's saying to keep the commandments is to keep in mind all that God has revealed of himself in Christ. If you remember from John chapter number 1, verse number 18, the gospel of John, I should say, that it says that Jesus is the one who has come to make known the Father. In fact, let me just read that verse to you. I'll, I'll go there. John chapter 1 verse 18 is a very important verse to keep in mind, especially in this particular section. The gospel of John verse, chapter 118 says this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That little phrase, made him known, basically just means declare. He has expounded the Father's heart and wisdom and mind and love to us. He's revealed God to those in the world. And those who are Christ, John here says, will keep that word. That word that Christ revealed, those who now are Christ, belong to him by faith. They will, as he says again, keep it. As he says, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Keep, of course, could probably be better translated by a couple other words. Because it actually means guard or to observe. It has in mind that idea of a very watchful eye. As if you are under the eye of some sort of guard, like a military guard. It's sort of the same word that appears in Philippians where Paul is talking about the peace of God will keep you. It's the same idea as if a garrison is watching over you. And this we could say is then the Christian's responsibility. Those who are Christ have a duty, have a responsibility to protect and we could say guard the word of God. His commandments. That's how we evidence our obedience to him when we are fulfilling that obligation to protect, to keep, to observe it. And what are we protecting it from? Well, I think verses 7 and 8 give us the answer as he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. You see... We are keeping, we are protecting this commandment from, as he says, no new commandment. 
Right here again, John is sort of putting a line of separation, a line of distancing himself from the Gnostic teachers that were so prominent in this day. As they were everywhere trying to proclaim and propound that they had some new revelation, some new doctrine from God. I have a word from the Lord, you could hear them say. Listen, God has told me to tell you this. If you hear a preacher who says something like that, you can be sure that he's probably going to say something false. Someone who claims to have new revelation is not speaking according to God's words. They're speaking according to their own. God's word is right here in front of us. If you want to hear a word from the Lord, you can open up your scriptures and read them. We need to, as a church, as church is, we could say even, protect God's word from those false words that try and gain our attention, that try and gain our acclaim. Anyone who's saying such things, as John is here saying, they're trying to promote some new commandment. And therefore they are not keeping, they are not guarding this word that they say that they believe in at all. John is very clear here. His commandment is no new thing. It's no new fangled doctrine. As he says actually, again, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. You've already had these words before you. This is, I think, an amazing thing to think about. That the church, the church, the New Testament church especially, was not established out of some newfangled commandment. Actually, it was the old commandment with new explanations and new revelations given to it. <laughs> That's, of course, another reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes preaching what? What does Jesus preach? He preaches the Old Testament scriptures. <laughs> When Jesus is preaching in the New Testament, in the Gospels especially, what is he preaching? He's referencing all of those Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms, the Prophets, the Law. He's referencing all of those things that the Jews were very familiar with. Those who grew up in synagogue were very familiar with all of these verses that he's referencing. The Prophets, uh, the prophets Isaiah, the scriptures and the Psalms of David. And yet now through Jesus, he gives them new meaning. I think it's amazing to think about the fact that before some of these New Testament letters were written, what were Paul and Peter and all of those other great apostles and preachers building the church with? The Old Testament, the writings of Isaiah, and saying that this one Jesus, he's that one. (laughs) He's the one from Isaiah 53, the one from Psalm 22, and so on and so forth. This Jesus, he's the one that fulfills all of these things. And how Paul can write that in Jesus, all of the promises, all of the promises of God from the Old Testament till now are yes and amen in him. And you can see they are very adamant about protecting this type of word from new types of revelations that would come in and confuse it. Come in and make it muddied. And that's why John says, when I'm writing to you, it's no new thing. It's the old thing. And yet at the same time, it is new. Did you notice how he says that? He almost contradicts himself. I'm writing to you, no new commandment. So he's separating himself from the false teachers. But I'm writing to you an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. It's the one that you heard from Sunday school. Back when you were learning on all the flannel graph lessons. It's the same word, but now it's being given a new meaning. A great new interpretation, as he says. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. 
Why? Because it's true in him and in you. How? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's new in Christ. Christ gives the scriptures new meaning because he is the word, the actual word of God. Come in the flesh to declare the heart of God to you and to I. So here Jesus is that light, that true light that he says is already shining. And he comes to bring those that are sitting in darkness into the light and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This, of course, again, is just the gospel. So when John is saying, guard the command, what is he saying? Keep the gospel central. Keep it undiluted from all of these other messages From all of these other meanings that we seek to give it. From all of these other ways that we confuse it. That we ruin it and rob it of its power. I think it's a travesty what's been done to the gospel of Christ. And some of the churches that are around this country. And the ways in which it's been turned into nothing but a self-help message. A way in which you and I can better ourselves. Actually the gospel is nothing like that. The gospel isn't a message which helps us better ourselves. It's a message which is comes to us from the outside that tells us, yes, you are dead in sin, but there's one who has come to make you alive. And I think so long as the church protects that, that God's blessing will be on the church. That's why the church here, as John is here saying, is charged to keep his commandments, to guard the gospel, guard the command that you've been given from God himself. Guard this message, this revelation of the Christ. We need no other gospel. Which leads me to point number two. Not only do we guard the command, but also we love the brother. Because we want to know that you can know that you are his, that you belong to Christ. Not only does it involve guarding the command, it involves loving the brother. Because I would say, how does this connect? Well, watch. Because I think those who are preaching another gospel, as Paul would say in the opening verses of Galatians. This other gospel, so to speak. They often, I would say, do so with with a heart to make the truths of Jesus, the truths of God, more Easy to hear, more palatable, more, we could say, relevant to the unchurched and the ungodly. They do so out of a way to draw people in. So they're changing the gospel. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about these things that people don't like to hear. Let's not talk about the, uh, all of these, these bad negative ideas. Let's talk about love and mercy. Let's, let's talk about just the things that we like to hear. Blessing and prosperity and those sorts of things. And they do so out of perhaps a well-intentioned heart to get people into the doors of church. But that message is also a false, it's a half message. It's not even a full gospel. And even though they're doing so out of a somewhat of a, a motivation to love their brother, they're actually not loving their brother at all. Because so long as the gospel is not guarded, so long as it's not protected and promoted exactly how Jesus has given it to us, we are actually not only forfeiting our charge as God's messengers, as God's ambassadors, we are also not loving our neighbor. Notice what John says in verse number 9 of our text, as he says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, this is John's point. That we who love God will love our neighbor. And how do we love our neighbor? By keeping the gospel protected. As he says in verse number 5, notice, verse number 5 reads, But whoever keeps his word, see again, he's linking here, watch what he does. He's linking this idea of protecting the word, protecting the commandment. As he says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. It is manifest in him. And by this we may know that we are in him. You can see here he's linking, he's stressing this idea that protecting the gospel equates, yes, love for God, but also loving our neighbor. And he's directly contrasting that with this idea of hate in verses 9 through 11. Again, as he says, In verse number 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The light of God, Christ, come down in us who is the light of the world. When he indwells in us by his spirit, it always reveals in love. That's what the gospel is manifest in. Of course, actually go with me. Go with me to Matthew chapter 22. I want you to see exactly how this is true. How does, how does the law of God get summarized? It gets summarized in a single word. Matthew 22, look at verse 34. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking Jesus questions. And it says in verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see here, Jesus himself stuns this audience by summarizing the law in a single word, love. The way that you can understand the heart of God is by here understanding that it comes about by love. You can know that you are his. John here is saying again to go back to our text in reference also to that text in Matthew 22. You can know that you belong to Christ by the way in which you are loving your neighbor. By the way in which as he says you're loving your brother. Those who say they belong to the light and they are not showing, evidencing that love are actually showing that they don't really love God at all. As it says in verse number 9 again, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The love of God for us always manifests itself in a love for others. You see, again, this light of the gospel is never meant to just stop on us. We who have the light, we who are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we're not just meant to have that wonderful news and then it stop on us. We're meant to almost, we could say, be like mirrors. 
Where the light of God is bouncing off of us and reflecting to others, beaming back into those who are around us. And here you could say that that's exactly what John is intending. Living with other sinners, though, means that there will be more than a few times when we stumble, as he says there in verse number 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, which is a word that just means offended. We will get offended by something someone did. That's what comes about when we live and rub shoulders with other sinners, other broken people. And as the case may be, we may find something to get offended by. And this may cause us to stumble and trip out of love into some sort of hatred for our brother or our sister in Christ. Which as here John is saying, this does not in the slightest evidence show That you are God's, that you know him at all. It doesn't reflect God's love when we're harboring bitterness, when we're nurturing hatred, when we're speaking ill of others. When we're spreading false stories and false truths, when we're trying to make others believe something other than the truth. What are we doing? We're actually just indicating to others that we're walking in darkness. We're not walking in the light. We may say that we're walking in the light. But our actions are speaking louder than what we profess to believe. Our actions are actually showing that we have stumbled out of the light. As John here is insinuating. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Not protecting the gospel and not loving our neighbor. Here John is saying is like we are walking blind. It's like we're bumbling about with no direction, no way in which we can know where we're going. It's like walking in a room with no lights on. You can be sure that you're about to stub your toe. (laughs) Something's going to happen. It's going to be painful. If we say we know him, as John is here saying, then we ought to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. Again, that's what he says in verse number six. Notice, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And how did Jesus walk on this earth? Every single step was a step of love from beginning to end. Of self-sacrificial love, self-denying love is a love that comes one way. Is a love that comes from the top down, from heaven down to earth. It's a love that's revealed in this world as Christ comes to die for those who hate him. You see here what John has just done. He's compared and contrasted our sort of feeble love for our brother with the undying and very stable love of God for sinners. Whereas we are sometimes stumbled and we get offended when our brother or sister offends us. Christ is not offended by our hatred. Christ is not scandalized by the world's hate. Rather, what does he do? He scandalizes the world by his love. That just gives despite what the world says and does to him. And I would say that ought to be the calling card of those who know Christ. If we say that we belong to Jesus, we could summarize this whole passage. We ought to love our brother and sister. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm actually just going to read those first couple verses. Very familiar though they may be. I think it's worth being reminded of what Paul says here. 
1 Corinthians 13, notice with me verse number 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith, have all the faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All the things that we say we are doing, that we say that we believe, if we say that we believe that Jesus is the light of the world, that he has come in us and transferred us again out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and yet we're not loving our brother, what is all that talk? It's as a noisy symbol or a clanging gong. It's just noise. It's just sound. It's just the din of our own pride. Christians, we ought to be known for love. The love of Jesus manifest in us is a love of self-denying, self-sacrifice. And I could say that we ought to be known by the same. You will know that you are his by how you walk in love. Love for your brother. But lastly, this brings me to the last way that we may know that we are his is by resisting the world. Guard the command. Love the brother and resist the world. You see, that love will mean nothing. If we're conceding to what the world is offering. There's lots of ways in which we can be distracted by what the world says is good, by what the world says is pleasurable, by what the world says we ought to pursue. And we see all these commercials and we're filling our minds with all of these things that says, chase after this, chase after this, grab this. This will give you what you want. Don't worry about the truth. Don't worry about what God wants. You see, by giving in to such ideas, we are again not loving our brother, not loving our neighbor. That's why John, I think, is here making a very pointed effort to prompt this church, this church that he says, you are my children, to take their identity as God's children very seriously. It's not just a thing we say. It's not just a passing thing to say I'm a daughter of the king or I'm a son of the father. I am a son of God. Notice what he says in verse number 12. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. It's interesting to note how sort of repetitive John gets in these couple verses, isn't it? As he's somewhat sort of giving them a clue as to why he's writing, as to why he's being so pointed and adamant about these things that he's telling them. And I don't think this is just John padding his word count. He's not just getting wordy to be wordy by repeating himself over and over again to these different groups of people that he's addressing. Actually, I think he's doing something very important. In these words, you can almost hear John almost addressing this church and these people that believe in Christ in sort of a grandfatherly fashion. When John's writing, he's an older man. A man who's been seasoned. A man who's, we could say, weathered by a long life of ministry. 
He being the youngest of the apostles, he endured a lot for the sake of the ministry of Christ. They saw a lot. There's a lot of water under that ministerial bridge, we could say. But here he, in his wisdom, calls out these three groups. Groups that belong to this church. Little children, fathers, and young men. And he gives them, each of them, a word, we could say, an admonition, a reminder of what they know. He says, little children, you could say, you know your sins are forgiven. Fathers, you know who is from the beginning. Young men, you know you have overcome the evil one. Each time he's reminding them of what they have knowledge of, how and why. Because those things are true in Christ. These are truths that are true in the true one, in the just one, in the one who is truth itself, Jesus Christ. And this is what the gospel does. This is what the light of the world of the world does. And those who are transferred from darkness into light, it gives us a knowledge that these things are true. We have been forgiven. We know the one who is from the beginning. We know that the evil one is already rendered powerless. So what does that mean? Well, it means, verse 15, that we can resist the world. Notice what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here John is calling this church and everyone in it to sort of make their stand, so to speak, against, as he says, the world. Which is a very popular, we could say, New Testament nickname or euphemism. For all of the things that run contrary to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of God's truth and his holiness and his will and his might and his power and his grace. All of those things that run counter to that, that is what is being sort of grouped up and, and collected in that term, the world. It's a stand-in for the kingdom of darkness, which operates under the authority of Satan. As it says that he is the one who is, we could say, the power, the prince of the power of the air. And what he does is he marshals all of his false truths, all of his deceitful schemes. And he brings them together and he throws them at those who say they belong to the light. At those who say they trust in God. He throws all those darts at God's church. He tries to get as much as he can, as much as he might. He tries to get God's people, those who say they belong to Jesus, to stumble and fall, to get offended, to get ruined, to get deceived, to get downcast, to flounder, to give up their stand. And that's why John here calls those within the church to take their stand against all these fabrications against all these fictions that the world offers because they cannot give you what they promise as he says here for all that is in the world is not from the father but from the world and it's passing away all of the things that it says they can give you they are nothing they are fleeting they are as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes they are nothing but a vapor nothing but a breath the church And even here, especially, it's young people. 
They are called to withstand this growing barrage of falsehood by how? By standing for the truth of the gospel, by protecting it, by loving their neighbor. And how are they able to do so when those who have the truth, a.k.a. the fathers, those who are older in the faith, as he says, you know him who is from the beginning. By them modeling and passing it on. John here articulates the importance of each person within the church. Little children, young people, fathers, no matter what your age is, no matter how much faith you have, how much ministry experience you have or don't have, you have a part to play in the kingdom of God resisting the world. And in doing so, what? You are evidencing to the world and to your neighbor, to your brother, to your sister, that you are his. And it's the word that abides in you that does it. That key phrase there in verse 14 is the one that stands out. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. You and I are made to guard the command to love the brother. To resist the world. How? By the word of God abiding in us. And by we abiding in the word. The word that comes from the Father. The word of truth. The word of grace. That's the word that gives us fortitude. That's the word that gives us knowledge. That's the word that gives us faith. That's the word that gives us strength to persevere and press on in this life, in this world that would make it much easier if we just give up. But John here is calling this church, take up your arms. Guard the command. Extend that kindness and that compassion to your brother, to your sister. And yes, resist the world and its allure. Because it will come. It will come for you. Promising you great things. Promising you an abundance of blessings. But its promises never are fulfilled. They can never live up to what they promise. There's only one who can. And there's only one who does. And his name is Jesus, the Christ. The light of the world. Who comes to rescue you out of darkness and death. And to bring you into his light. That's what Jesus has done. And that is true for the whole church. 